The Quarantine Conversations podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists are lab coats. Uh, today we're celebrating uh, members of our earth, ocean, and atmospheric science community who also belong to the LGBTQ rainbow. Our interviewee today is Sarah Harris, a geoscience education researcher. Uh, now, Sarah, in this uh, series, we aim to meet people who are at various stages in their scientific studies and careers. Uh, so would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Well, so at the moment at the university, I'm primarily an administrator. Uh, my administration work is largely, though, in support of teaching and learning and trying to do that effectively across the Faculty of Science for, for all students. Uh, so my job includes everything from managing the curriculum process by which new courses or specializations come into being uh, or through which curriculum for students changes over time. Um, I'm also largely a, a teacher, uh, but right now because of the pandemic, I'm also a, a student and I've been studying birds and, and baking lately. Um, certainly my research in science education has just been kind of trickling along for the past few years since I've been in the dean's office. Uh, it is in science education, and it's mostly now about how people learn climate science. Interesting. Well, that, that's very relevant uh, to to what the world is talking about um, <laughs> at the moment. Um, now, how would you define a, a geoscience education researcher? Good question. So, um, broadly, I would say it's someone who researches how people learn geoscience and anything that would go into that, uh, that learning. So uh, I think it is important actually to, to emphasize that it has geoscience in there. So it is a discipline specific um, education research uh, area and, and it matters that people in that area have a grounding in geoscience itself. And uh, so there are certainly different people coming from different areas of geoscience will have different questions that they're interested in. Uh, you know, one that many people might relate to is, for example, um, how do people learn how to think in three dimensions as geologists and geophysicists might need to do when they're trying to say image the subsurface or oceanographers might need to do if they're trying to figure out uh, three dimensions in, in the ocean. So, so anyway, it's all about, um, how do people learn and can we do it more effectively? Interesting. And do you find that uh, learning geosciences is significantly different than other sciences? Um, I don't know whether it, you mean fundamentally different, like it has different problems associated with it? Yeah, or um, are, are there challenges that are a bit unique? I think there are some challenges that are, that are unique. And actually I would put the 3D thinking into that category. Mm -hmm. uh, also um, geoscientists are people who spend a lot of time in the field and there's been quite a bit of um, emphasis on how can people best learn in the field kind of in those kinds of settings. What, it, what kind of experiences should we be providing there that will help people become good at where, that their professions if they turn out to be professional geoscientists. Um, those are the two main things that, that come to mind. I'm sure there are others too. Well, it's good to know that um, everything that you're doing can be transferred over to other faculties too and um, other science, uh, sciences. <laughs> uh, now, you aren't just an uh, education researcher. Uh, you have a science background um, in a previous life too, right? 
I do. Yeah. So my training was in paleo-oceanography and paleoclimate. So I uh, went to grad school and did some some research after that in uh, paleo-oceanography, primarily looking at long sediment cores and trying to figure out from those uh, what kind of climate changes had occurred on what timescales, how, say, climate on continents had, had uh, interacted with uh, ocean current changes and things like that. So um, that was super fun. I, I enjoyed that kind of research. And I think some of the skills certainly that I learned there are, are actually still important uh, in my administrative work. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, how did you get into paleo ocean climatology <laughs> and education research? <laughs> yeah, well, um, so my, my last year at university, my fourth year at university, um, I came back from a third year at university where I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union. And I came back and my department, which was called Earth and Environmental Sciences, uh, had just hired their first woman faculty member ever in the department. And uh, she became a really important mentor to me. Her name was Suzanne O'Connell. And uh, she encouraged me to go for a summer internship out at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which I did. And had a sort of steep learning curve in computer programming and sediment cores and how do you extract signals from sediment cores. Uh, had a great time. It was intense. Uh, but from that experience, decided to go to graduate school. So I went to graduate school in, in paleoceanography. And after that, after finishing my PhD, I uh, had a choice. I was either going to go to France and do a postdoc again in paleoceanography, or I um, did what I decided to do, which was go teach at this little nonprofit organization called Sea Education Association. Uh, it's in Woodsville, Massachusetts. It's an amazing organization uh, where what we would do is we took undergraduates out to sea and did oceanographic research with them. It was kind of like a, it was a study abroad kind of program for those undergraduates. Uh, I spent seven years there, went, got to sail a lot of places in the ocean, and um, I also uh, get seasick. And so I did start looking for a job on land. Uh, and I was super excited to find the ad for the job at UBC. And I uh, feel super lucky that, that I actually got the job and got to come here. It, uh, it took me a while. I was probably looking for a job for about a year and a half. Okay. Well, a year and a half, that, that's still pretty respectable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I guess I haven't actually told you how I got into geoscience education. Oh, right. So, so, um, so my first term here, which is the fall of 2005, happened to be the term that Carl Wyman was going around North America looking for a university where he could go and uh, lead, an, a, lead a big experiment in science education. Like, could we change uh, the culture of science education and how we approach it using uh, evidence-based research, so on how people learn? Can we apply this in a, at a large scale? And so my first term here, he gave a talk, and I went to that talk. And afterwards, I thought, you know, that's, that's really what I want to do. Because here I was, I was a new faculty member at UBC, kind of looking for, you know, what's the next thing that I, that I really want to do? And what do I really want to do here? So um, I feel extraordinarily lucky and uh, had really good timing that uh, then the Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative started uh, maybe a year and a half later, and uh, I got to be involved in that. 
EOS had a lot of people who were super keen on teaching and learning and was really uh, primed to uh, make a lot of progress in that area. So uh, we were all starting out, we weren't, we weren't education researchers. We were all people who had been trained in more basic research. Um, and I think that was part of the point that people were trained in basic research and understood the discipline and were trying to then uh, figure out how best to help people learn that, that discipline. But in the process, um, many of us uh, started to do science education research and had to shift our, our thinking and, and explore a new field with a whole new literature and a whole new structure of that literature. Um, and it's been a really, um, it's been sort of a, a gateway to another community of geoscience education researchers, which uh, I feel really lucky to, to be a part of. And those are, those are my main colleagues who are outside UBC and also inside UBC. Well, thanks. Uh, from what I understand, you and your team have really made um, the department to be a, a leader in geoscience education. <laughs> it's been great. We had a lot of support. We had, I think at the, at the peak, we had maybe five science teaching and learning fellows. And now, of course, as you know, we still have a science education specialist. Uh, and I really love that that person is, is still embedded in the department and has those connections to people um, all over and, and is easily accessible to people. I think that's really a great model. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to go back to something else you mentioned earlier. Um, you mentioned that uh, you did a term abroad in the USSR. Um, <laughs> I've been speaking to some people who did their field work in other countries and they say doing field work in other countries versus Canada can be uh, very different. So do you notice any, did you do any field work in the USSR? Um, and do you notice any similarities or differences? I didn't do any field work oh. when I was there. I wasn't actually, so I went to a university where I didn't have to declare my major very early. So I kind of declared my major at the end of my second year and then went off to the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back and I finished my major in a year. Okay. So um, it was a little different than the way UBC is structured. Uh, I did take some geology courses. Um, and I had, heard, I had heard that they were not actually teaching plate tectonics yet at that time. And so I went, I signed up for a tectonics course. And I went to a couple of classes and my Russian really wasn't very good. So, but I recognized the, the pictures they were drawing on the board. And so I was like, okay, they're teaching tectonics already. Whoever told me that was wrong. They're still teaching tectonics. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably the closest I got to the field was like taking trains all over the place for days on end. Um, but no, I didn't, I wasn't tromping out in the, in the woods or the Ural Mountains or anything like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but you have done a lot of research and, and you've made some interesting discoveries. Uh, would you care to share any? So I think the most um, interesting recent one is around climate change education and people learning about climate science. Um, and just for framing, um, I think the climate crisis is the biggest deal of our time. It's the biggest problem that our society has to collectively figure out how to, how to deal with. And um, one of the factors in our ability to deal with the climate crisis is related to how risky people think the threat of climate change is and what are our risk perceptions around not taking any action. And so as a climate science educator, my default is to want to think that helping students understand climate change and climate science 
would actually impact their perception of risk that would be in the direction of encouraging some kind of societal action. That would be my, my hope as, a, as an educator. Um, so just to tell a little story, uh, in about 2012, uh, there's a cognitive psychologist from Yale named Dan Kahan, and he published some work that appeared to have shown that it doesn't actually matter how scientifically literate someone is, that one's views on the risk of climate change are pretty much all tied up in their worldviews and in their values. So it wouldn't matter about how scientifically literate you are. And uh, what's actually worse is that, that his data showed that the more scientifically literate people were, the more polarized they were in their perceptions of risk. So like if you think about uh, political polarization, um, if you don't know very much about science, then you're actually uh, less, you're actually closer to your political opposite than if you know more about science, then you're actually farther apart from your, your political opposite. So this is, this was just, <laughs> this was really depressing, I got to say. It's like... Wow. So it doesn't really matter what we do. It just matters whether how people view the, the world and what they what they value, how they're going to act on, on climate change. Um, but it was a little bit of a it's important stuff. Worldviews and values really matter a lot. Um, but one of the things that Kahan and, and the group he was working with did was they used a really general scientific literacy test. They were not examining what someone knew about climate science or about climate change. So they had questions that were things like, you know, um, uh, whether antibiotics would be effective against viruses or like whether, um, you know, how many planets were between the earth and the sun, that kind of thing. So they were looking at very uh, basic uh, scientific literacy and numeracy. And so... Uh, I was working with a group of about three other colleagues, and together what we did is we designed and validated a, a concept inventory, which is a test. And the idea was to actually test people's knowledge specifically about climate science. And so the development of these tests is actually pretty lengthy, uh, and it took us, I think, a couple of years to actually get the test developed. Uh, but with it, we were able to show that for university students anyway, who are at a fairly malleable time in their lives, um, learning about climate science and about climate change did actually have an impact on their risk perception. So turns out that their worldviews and values are still really, really big players and are actually bigger drivers than their climate science knowledge. But climate science knowledge is on the board. You can, you can uh, do some education and actually have a, an impact on someone's risk perception. So I think what one of the things that that's made me think about is, um, you know, perhaps we should be incorporating worldviews and values into our courses more than we normally do if we think about ourselves really as, as science educators. But uh, if worldviews and values are what really matters, then combining them with the science may be a, a, an interesting way to go. That's really interesting. But that, that also sounds like a lot of what... Um a lot of the people I've been interviewing have been saying is that uh, when they're in this field, they're working with so many other um, disciplines that you would never expect to work with. Uh, and usually it's like computers or biology or chemistry. You're working with cognitive psychology. <laughs> um, and it's still just as, um, as important, like you said, um, because even though you may have the facts from biology or chemistry, uh, getting that through is, um, like you said, it's never black and white. <laughs> 
Yeah. And humans, studying humans is just kind of crazy, right? Because we'll do different things at different times of the day. Like it's, it's really hard. Some, some very small things can, can have big impacts on how we behave. And if we're trying to observe those behaviors and then extract some meaning from it, then um, it's almost a, a constantly confounded problem. One thing we hear from our Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric scientists is that uh, some really crazy things can happen out in the field. Um, it seems like it's an unending source of entertainment uh, for people like me who don't go to the field. Um, but have you ever had anything crazy happen out there, uh, out on the ocean or uh, in the educational field, I guess, too? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, certainly going out to sea is, is a fascinating experience uh, just to in that time that I was going out to see you really literally would get away from the news and you'd get away from the internet and you know it was it was pretty isolated uh, and um, I guess a couple things that are kind of fun come to mind we, we used to do swim calls out in the middle of the ocean so we just we were at sea education we were we were sailing a, about a 40 meter schooner around so we would just heave to and uh, have a swim call in, you know, 3,000 meters of water, which is kind of kind of trippy. <laughs> What's a swim call? A swim call is uh, everyone gets to go swimming off the side of the ship. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so we'd just stop and uh, we'd all go swimming and someone would be on shark watch and, you know, hopefully it would all go well and, and, it, and it usually did. Um, now, if, you're, if you're doing a shark watch, where in, where in the world are you? <laughs> uh, so, so these trips that, that I was on, uh, so the organization I worked for had two ships. One was in the Atlantic, one in the Pacific. So the, the ships would go from New England down to the Caribbean, uh, around the Caribbean, back up to New England, up to Canada, back down. Um, the one in the Pacific would usually go from the U.S. West Coast, sometimes down to um, Mexico or Central America. One trip I did, which was really amazing, was from Costa Rica to Tahiti to, sorry, Costa Rica to the Galapagos, to the Marquesas to Tahiti. Um, they only did that tri trip once, but it was, it was pretty spectacular. And then, so a pretty consistent trip would be between Tahiti and Hawaii. Um, they, they, since I left, they actually go out as far as New Zealand now. Um, though, of course, with COVID, things have really changed for um, everybody, including Sea Education Association. Um, we had some, you know, challenging equipment kinds of things. Uh, I remember trying to get a, a sediment grab in the, so I was out there as the chief scientist, so I was overseeing scientific operations, and um, we were trying to get a sediment grab on, um, in the Gulf Stream, <laughs> and, and we're on a sailboat, <laughs> and so, so um, I think we were in like, I don't know how many meters of water. It was maybe 600 meters of water. So it was already pretty deep for us to do, to try to get a sediment grab. Normally we would do this in pretty shallow water, but we didn't really know how fast, like we kind of knew how fast we were drifting, but it was really hard to figure out when we hit the bottom. And if you, so you've got this grab on the end of a wire. And if you let out too much wire, then you risk having a big tangle in the wire. And then when you bring it back up, you can't, deal with tangle um, but if you don't let out enough and the equipment's actually going down in the water at an angle which it was seriously because we were drifting with the Gulf Stream um, you don't really know if you've let out enough to, to hit the bottom to actually get the sample so anyway I just remember 
I just remember we let out a lot of wire and we were, I think we were probably just laying wire out on the ocean floor and, you know, thank goodness we were drifting along so we weren't getting a tangle. But we, we did get that shipwreck back up and we got, um, we got like, you know, two tablespoons of foraminifera or something. Um, so that was, that was a success story. Uh, boy, I didn't think, I didn't think about, there are a million sea stories I'm sure, but I didn't think about that carefully enough before we talked. Sorry, two tablespoons of what? Oh, of, of like um, calcium carbonate shells mm, okay. on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, now, this is, you probably explained this quite a bit, but um, how would you explain the real world, world applications of your research? Yeah, so I think there's a pretty direct link between climate science education and, and society's main challenge today. Like, um, you know, what are we going to do? We have some mitigation ideas. We have some adaptation ideas. Things are happening. Um, but we really need to shift our energy system off of fossil fuels. Uh, I, I like to think that um, more people knowing more about climate science and being better educated about how the climate system works will actually push us in that direction uh, faster. Uh, I don't have super strong evidence for that. I have got a little bit of evidence. Uh, but it really connects to um, what we're faced with right now. How, how do we, how do we uh, essentially affect a just transition to a new kind of energy system that, uh, where we do our best to not leave people behind? Um, so, yeah, that's the main connection. And are you hopeful that will make that shift in time or, or less so? <laughs> <laughs> Am I hopeful? Uh, I am sometimes hopeful. I am sometimes not hopeful, I would say. I think uh, the challenge with COVID has a lot of parallels with the challenge of climate science, climate change, and, and dealing with climate change. Um, it's a, they're both questions where science has a really important role to play to inform the kinds of actions that we might choose to take as a society. Um, you know, there, there's evidence in both that actions that we take can have impact. We just, in neither one of them, are we at a scale of implementing those actions uh, at a scale that's required yet. So, uh, yeah, I guess I, can continue to be hopeful, yet, you know, we see climate crises and climate refugees and a lot of negative impacts on people of, of climate change already. So uh, certainly for those people, um, this is already here, it's, and it's already here for, for all of us, uh, but it has, it has a disproportionate impact on, on people who are the least able to really have the resources to, to deal with it. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's true of COVID as well. That sounds like a really healthy approach, um, being optimistic, but also um, managing one's expectations of, of what's going to be achieved. Um, yeah, it helps build the urgency, but also um, not be too devastated uh, when certain initiatives don't go through. Yeah, maybe so. Um, how would you describe your, your favorite part of your work? 
Uh, let's see, favorite part of my work. Um, I think it's largely like the people that I get to work with. I think that, uh, you know, interacting with other people in, in the work and, and learning new things from other people is probably, probably the highlights. Uh, even, you know, now that I'm in the job of an administrator, uh, the people I work with are fantastic. And um, there are so many, it just, it makes it really clear that uh, this kind of work can't be done without a community of people working together, even though, you know, we might not all necessarily agree, but um, everybody has some different thing to bring, some different kind of expertise. Um, so I know that's a very general answer, but, uh, but that's probably where, where I would land on that question. No, and that actually uh, leads me nicely to my next question. <laughs> um, so today's podcast is all about um, celebrating one aspect of diversity within our department, um, queer persons in earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences. Um, unfortunately, that isn't always the case. Uh, so in general, have you found this field to be uh, welcoming or hostile? And has there ever been an occasion uh, where your uh, orientation has affected your studies or your work? So uh, being gay, not really, at least like not that I've noticed. Maybe, maybe people have had some kind of, I don't know, attitude that they didn't express to me. So uh, certainly on that dimension, uh, not really. And I, I understand that I, I think at UBC, at least the educational leadership stream, the um, portions of LGBTQ people in that stream are actually similar or even above the general population. Um, uh, in terms of gender, absolutely, I've noticed. I think if you asked any woman in science and NGO science, you'd probably find uh, that answer. Uh, I mean, I'm in a field that didn't allow women to go to sea until I think sometime in the 1970s. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's come a long way since then, but, um, you know, has not been particularly welcoming necessarily to, to women. And now I think what we are uh, seeing, which we already knew, was that the geosciences are extraordinarily and overwhelmingly white uh, in terms of who participates in, in geoscience. And I think that's something that we really need to grapple with and uh, carefully figure out uh, how we can make learning geoscience and being a geoscientist um, uh, more welcoming and more inclusive. Uh, I think that uh, this, if you look across the faculty of science and all the different disciplines, uh, earth sciences really stand out. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you um, brought up the other, other ways that um, a person can be, um, I guess, othered <laughs> in, in the department, yeah. uh, for, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, no one is just uh, one, one identity. We're all a combination yeah. of the different identities. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, you mentioned that one of your favorite parts of your work is working with all these different people. Um, of course, having COVID come along, um, <laughs> we've been cut off from those communities in some ways. Uh, so how has COVID impacted your work and have you been able to um, work in any way uh, from home? Yeah, I've been here in this, what you see, <laughs> in this space uh, since March 17th. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky. Um, my partner and I live in a condo. Uh, we don't have children. Uh, we don't have elder care or care for um, you know particular close family members. You know we're we're a support to a couple of neighbors. 
uh, but as um, has become really evident to me over this time period, uh, there are colleagues, uh, faculty, staff, students who are um, really struggling more at home uh, with COVID. Uh, I think particularly those with young children. Uh, that has been really, really challenging for people. Uh, so for me, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I have, I spend a lot of time on Zoom. <laughs> so, so I do at the end of the day, pretty much have to get off the computer. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the fact that I no longer have the commuting time, I, I now go down to the, I go down to Vanier Park and gets point every day and watch the birds. So uh, some new routines have, I've been able to develop some, some new things. So for me, I can do my work from, from home. It's not, not that big a problem. Excellent. Excellent. Um, that's all the questions I have for today. Uh, before I let you go, did you have anything else you'd like to share? No, I just, uh, thank you for doing this. Glad you're doing this podcast series. And uh, I uh, look forward to listening to some of them. Absolutely. And thanks for participating. It's, um, it's always nice to, to have more voices. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.